Matthew chapter 17. We're going to look at verses 1 through 13. The message is entitled, Jesus Gloriously Transfigured. Have you ever had uh, the privilege of experiencing God's fellowship in a very special way? Maybe at home, maybe driving down the freeway, maybe you're just uh, having a cup of coffee or whatever, but God's been dealing with you, you've been seeking the Lord about some things, and um, uh, He has taught you some very important lessons for life there. Uh, You hold those things dear to your heart in those occasions, and such is the occasion here. We're going to see about these three um, privileged um, disciples that experience here this event and the Mount of Transfiguration. Um, it will unfold for us in three movements. Let me um, read our text for us here. Matthew 17, 1 through 13. Now after six days, Jesus took Peter, James, and John, his brother, led them up on a high mountain by themselves, and he was transfigured before them. His face shone like the sun, and his clothes became as white as the light. And behold, Moses and Elijah appeared to them, talking with them. And then Peter answered and said to Jesus, Lord, it is good for us to be here. If you wish, let us make here three tabernacles, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. And while he was still speaking, behold, a bright cloud overshadowed them. And suddenly a voice came out of the cloud, saying, This is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. Hear him. And when the disciples heard it, they fell on their faces and were greatly afraid. But Jesus came and touched them and said, Arise, and do not be afraid. And when they had lifted up their eyes, they saw no one but Jesus only. Now as they came down from the mountain, Jesus uh, commanded them, saying, Tell the vision to no one until the Son of Man is raised from the dead. And his disciples asked him, saying, Why then do the scribes say that Elijah must come first? Jesus answered said to them, Indeed, Elijah is coming first and will restore all things. But I say to you that Elijah has come already, and they did not know him, but did to him whatever they wished. Likewise, the Son of Man is also about to suffer at their hands. Then the disciples understood that he spoke to them of John the Baptist. The transfiguration unfolds for us in three movements here. First, we have the glorification at the transfiguration, verse 1. And two. Second, we have the conversations during the transfiguration in verse 3 through 8. And third, we have the proclamation after the transfiguration in verse 9 through 13. Begins with the glorification at the transfiguration. Notice in verse 1, the occasion is closely related to the confession of Peter at Caesarea Philippi, verse 1. Now, the parallel passages, you have Mark 9, 1 through 14, and Luke 9, 27 through 36, and we'll make mention of some of these. But notice the break is unfortunate in Matthew here in verse 1. The pivotal term uh, and verse here that connects the confession of Peter at Caesarea Philippi and the transfiguration is verse 28 of the previous chapter, chapter 16. There Jesus made a promise. This is what he said. Assuredly, I say to you, there are some standing here who shall not taste death till they see the Son of Man coming in his kingdom. Now, you and others and I, when we first come, we read chapter by chapter. We stop at chapter 16. Then we pick up chapter 17 tomorrow. And we forget that it's joined together. Um, The verse division in Mark and Luke are much better. 
in that they don't interrupt the flow there in Mark 9.1 and Luke 9.27. The verse provides the connection for the entire section. Some disciples were going to see the preview of the Son of Man coming in his kingdom. Look at verse um, there at the end, 28. It tells you what they're going to see. That's the content. It's amazing what commentators say this is speaking about. (laughs) The chapter and verse division, as you know, were not part of the inspiration of the Spirit of God. When they wrote, they just wrote scrolls like big letters. The chapter of the vision commonly used today were developed by Stephen Langton, an Archbishop of Canterbury around A.D. 1227. The Wycliffe English Bible of 1382 was the first Bible to use uh, this chapter pattern. Since the Wycliffe Bible, nearly all Bible translations have followed um, Langton's chapter division. Now, the Hebrew Old Testament was divided into verse by the Jewish rabbi by the name of Nathan in A.D. 1445. Uh, Robert Eastein, who was also known as Steph- Stephanus, and he was the first to divide this uh, in the New Testament time standard uh, uh, numbered verses in this around 1555. And Stephanus essentially used Nathan's verse division for the Old Testament and was the first to publish the first complete Bible chapter and verse. Since that time, beginning with the Geneva Bible, the chapter and verse division employed by Stephanus have been accepted into nearly every Bible version. And you can imagine the helpfulness that there is, especially if you're looking at the book of Isaiah with 66 chapters. Can you imagine trying to find a verse? Um, so it helps us to, but sometimes the breaks are maybe a verse off or a whole section, what they call a pericope, the section, and it just makes the adjustment. But for the most part, they're pretty well divided. But this one in Matthew is not a good place. Mark and Luke get it a lot better. Now notice still in verse 1, the time relation between the two events is given for us. It says, now after six days. When you read both Mark and Luke, they record the same words, but a different length of time. Both say, now it came to pass after about eight days after, here's the key, these Sayings, Mark 9.2 and Luke 9.28. The Bible critics jump at stuff like this. They love it because they believe it's a contradiction. It's a seeming contradiction. Both Mark and Luke say, after these things, meaning the sayings of Caesarea Philippi, six days and two make eight. He's including the days, it says, of Philippi. Seeming contradiction. So you have to roll up your sleeves, get back and look at the whole four before you come in and examine the tree. Okay? <laughs> you have to look at the whole section. Very important. This doesn't come just by casual reading. You must read it repeatedly, repeatedly, and mark the natural divisions and key phrases and piddle terms and all that. That's important. Now, all three synoptic gospels record the transfiguration after Peter's confession at Caesarea Philippi, consistently. Peter had declared that Jesus Christ was the Son of the living God. This was uh, God's revelation directly to him. It wasn't because he was so bright. It wasn't because he had been with Jesus for so long, and now he had caught on. And therefore, the connection is vital for 
now the father would allow these three disciples to see what they had been revealed and believed by faith. They're going to see it visibly, completely. Notice the participation of this revelation was limited to three. Jesus took Peter, James, and John, his brother. The three disciples were the inner circle of Jesus. They were given high privilege, even as Moses took Aaron, Nadab, Abihu, up into Sinai in Exodus 24.1. Now, when we uh, look at passages like this, especially in our politically correct cesspool of today, um, we say, well, that's not fair. Jesus is playing favors here. Listen, um, it's not about being equal because not everybody's equal. Everybody's equal before God as a sinner and for forgiveness. But to compare the differences and different abilities is not the product of being equal. Every time that you are training or you are tested... And they're going to make a selection of a handful or six or whatever the requirement is. is because they know that even though you're all human beings, some of you may be more excellent in math or in whatever you're being tested. And they want the cream of the crop. That's not being politically correct. That's just being wise. Simple. These guys were the inner circle. Jesus knew who and why. And he enabled them and chose them sovereignty. Their names are in the same order. And they're always one, two, three. Peter, James, John, they're the first three, the inner circle. And Peter's always the first one in every listening in the Testament. Um, Peter, James, and John would see Jairus' daughter um, raised from the dead in Mark 537 they would also see the lord in his passion there in the garden in matthew 26 37 and mark 14 33 special occasions just for these three uh you as a parent will have special times with one child that you won't have with another because you understand your children are different okay that doesn't mean you respect or love one more than the other though that can happen but you understand your children are different they have different lives different abilities different talents and you want to Minister to them on that level. Now, notice the location is stated. Uh, he led them up to the high mountain themselves. Tradition uh, locates this at Mount Tabor. Some of you will be with us in Israel next month, and we'll point it out to you. But uh, it's doubtful if it's there. It's not that high of a mountain. Others say Miron in Galilee, but that one doesn't fall short. It falls short also. But here we are. We have the connection, Mount Hermon, 9,200 feet. Um, this is where at the foot of the Mount Hermon, Jesus uh, um, asked Peter, who do you mean that I am? And they went through the whole thing and they said, but who do you say I am? Thou art the Christ Son of the living God. And it is there right at the foot and you have a cave there where water comes out through the mountain and it's believed that the God Pan uh, was born and everything and it was a place of idolatry. Right there we'll go up to the cafe up there and we'll go all the way up to the trenches where they fought in 73 and you'll look right over into Syria from there. And... Um, and, and that's, that's most likely the mountain that we're talking about here. Now, notice in verse 2, the revelation of the altar state of Jesus here. The change that came over Jesus is declared. He was 
transfigured before them. The word transfigured metamorphosis means a change from the inside out, revealing the inner nature of Jesus. He was God who became man. The passive aorist tense means the father was the agent of the actual change. In other words, there was an actual change, not something subjective in the mind or the eyes of the three apostles or disciples. It was a real thing, okay? You see, that's the thing with today's uh, subjectivism. We've kicked off and we've turned our backs on objective truth. So everything is very subjective. That's why everything is being interpreted, okay? Even our Constitution, they say it's a living document. It is not. Go back to school. A living document, you interpret according to the culture. That's not what it's about. You have places for amendments, but it's not a living document. And so when you go from objective to subjective, you've got a big problem. That's the thing about existentialism. You know, existentialism says that you can experience truth for yourself and no one can experience the truth that you've experienced because that truth is unique and therefore no one can judge your experience because your experience is absolutely truth. Wow, doesn't that sound smart? Morons. It's amazing. When you deny the truth of God, it's amazing all the stupidity that you believe, ladies and gentlemen. Amazing. The word metamorphosis is used for the new mind that we have in Christ in uh, Romans 12, 2, and for our glorified bodies after the resurrection in 2 Corinthians 3, 18. This happened, notice, before them, right before their eyes. They saw it. Uh, Luke gives us a detail in Luke 9.32. It says that Peter and those with him were heavy with sleep. And when they were fully awake, they saw his glory and the two men who stood with him. So again, as you put the synoptics together, you get the direction that this happened before, after, and you get the fuller picture. And you're better to understand it. Luke is the only one that says that this took place while Jesus was praying in Luke 9.29. Luke gives the fullest prayer life in the life of Jesus. Eight times he records that we did a whole study on it. Notice the change over Jesus is also described. His face shone like the sun and his clothes uh, became as white as snow. His face is depicted um, with a simile. A simile is introduced by one of two words, like or as. Here, like the sun. His face was shown simply means um, to give light. Uh, like Moses in Exodus 34:29, when the face shined and he had to put a veil over it. The light is compared to that of the sun, the rays of the sun. Now try to think of how you would have described an iPhone. From the 1960s. How would you describe them? These guys are trying to use what they know to describe something that's in the second coming. This is supernatural. This is the manifestation of God's glory. Trying to describe heavenly things with earthly vocabulary. Difficult. Doing the best job they can. Under the inspiration here. Um, notice his clothing is also depicted 
with a second simile, ass, became white as light. Light here, luco, means brilliant. Mark adds shining exceedingly, white like snow in Mark 9, 3. Mark gave his commentary, says, such as no launderer on earth can whiten them. Trying to scrub that white shirt, get it whiter than anybody could get anything white. Incredible. And the word light, false, again, means that which emits like a lamp. So this is all coming from within Jesus. This is the, the manifestation of his glory, which he divested himself, Philippians 2, 5 through 11 says, that he emptied himself of his glory, never of his deity. And he didn't think it robbery to be equal with God as he took the form of a servant. And he humbled himself, being obedient to the death of the cross. And for that reason, a name has been given to him above every other name. That the name of Jesus, that every knee should bow, every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. Amazing that God would do that for us, ladies and gentlemen. Just amazing. And the word become means to come to pass or into existence. An indicative eris middle voice. Remember, the middle voice is always done by the individual. All of this is at that set point in time, this came forth from Jesus. This was happening in this person. Mark says his clothing became shining, glistening. Mark 9.3. And Luke says glistening again. Of the flash out like lightning to be radiant, dazzling, white. Just, uh, there's not enough adjectives as they, uh, they're seeing his body just glorified. The metamorphosis here is like that of a caterpillar to a butterfly. You know, I've seen the cocoon and, you know, from one aspect of an animal to another one, which you couldn't relate the two. Uh, it's just totally different. Or like you buy a bulb at, at um, Home Depot or something. It's ugly, it's round, and, you know. And you put it in the ground, a beautiful flower comes up. And if you dig it up and cut off and put the ugly bulb here and put the flower here, now you know there's a relationship, but there's no likeness to it. I'm going to put this ugly bulb in the ground. And man, Zappo, what's going to come out is, is related, but nothing like it. Glorified. Glorified. 1 Timothy 3.16 says, God was manifested in the flesh, justified in the spirit, seen by angels, preached among the Gentiles, believed on in the world, received up in glory. God did all this to walk with men. God appears in Theophany, he says, you know, many times in the Old Testament, the cloud, the fire, um, lightning, thunders, um, because he's the pity of holiness and no man can see God uh, because he would just consume us. In fact, Exodus 24, 9 through 10 says, Then Moses went up, also Aaron, Nadab, and Abihu, and the 70 elders of Israel, and they saw the God of Israel. So people always say, well, what does it mean here when they saw the God of Israel? Read the rest of it. And there was under his feet, as it were, paved works of sapphire stones that was like the very heavens in his clarity. In other words, they declare and describe a visible description and form of what they see, but it's what's hiding God. In other words, he veils himself because he's a spirit and we can't see him. 
And so these are called theophanies, appearances of God. Sometimes we have Christophanies, an appearance of Jesus Christ in the Old Testament prior to the incarnation. When God came down to Abraham with the two angels, Christophany. That was God, Jesus Christ. Paul puts it this way. Who alone has immortality, dwells in an unapproachable light, who no man has seen or can see, to whom be honor and everlasting power. Amen. First Timothy 6.16. And so we describe God in many, a big old word, anthropomorphic. We use human terms to describe God's actions, the hand of God, the eye of God. But that doesn't mean he has eyes or hands. We just use that so we can identify and describe what he's doing and we understand it. Okay? Um, and you have to distinguish that. And also when it's um, figurative language, um, uh, lest you conclude that God's a chicken, he hides us under his wing. Um, he's talking about a, a metaphor of a protectiveness. So there's the literalness of anthropomorphism, yet knowing that he has no human parts, and there's figurative language to describe his tenderness, his love, or whatever it may be. And it's very evident in the context. Now, God in his second person here of the Godhead became incarnate to walk with man. In the beginning was the Word, the Word was God, and God was the Word, and the Word became flesh, and we beheld His glory as the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. John 1, 1, 1, 14. God did that for us. Absolutely. He did that to forgive us, to redeem us. God is Spirit, and He has, again, uh, the existence is eternal. It's just, He's a spirit being, as he, Jesus told the woman of Samaria, uh, but the hour is coming and now is when true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth for the Father seeks such to worship him. John 4.23 Spirit is the Holy Spirit of God, the third person. Truth is the objective revelation of God's word. The Holy Spirit never adds or takes away from God's word. The word of God is objective truth. It never changes in meaning. It absolutely means the same thing to every generation. There are hundreds and thousands of people that are sitting this morning, listening to pastors, so-called, proclaiming things that are just not true about God or the Bible. And they're just raising their hand and saying, Hallelujah, Amen, on their way to hell. See, a lot of people think I hate everybody, but I don't. <laughs> I don't know what makes them think that. It's just that I am a slave to the scriptures. Luther said, when they asked him to recount, I'm bound. My, 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 my mind is bound to the scriptures. I can do no other. If you don't hold yourself to the word, you will be a flake blown away by the wind. And it won't take long. Be careful. The glorification of Jesus at the transfiguration revealed he was God. Secondly, comes the conversations of the transfiguration, 3 through 8. Notice in verse 3, the prophet Moses and Elijah spoke now with Jesus. And um, the scene changed dramatically. And behold, Moses and Elijah appeared to them. And the word behold again means to fix one's eyes and it's an imperative command with the middle voice. Each individual has to obey this as it's given. And the prophet appears all of a sudden. Behold. It's an exclamation. 
Um, he, they made themselves appear self-visible. All of a sudden, Zappo, they're there. Now there are six people that are present. The two prophets, notice, were conversing with Jesus, talking with him. Matthew does not give us anything about the conversation, but remember earlier he said it had to do with the things of the kingdom, back in verse 28, right? Jesus said they would see, not see death till they saw the Son of Man coming in his kingdom, verse 28 of chapter 16. This is what they're seeing here. The three, Peter, James, and John, saw the second coming in capsule form, a preview of the second coming. They saw Revelation 19. The preview is also in Psalm 2. Why do the heathen rage? Why do they imagine a vain thing? I will have them in duration. I will laugh at them. Then he says, kiss the son, lest he be angry with you. The practice of idolatry. All of us, most majority of us are ex-Catholics. We kiss our scapula, our rosary. We kiss Peter's foot. We, what, people wear, down, wear out Peter's toe in Rome from kissing in other places. Then they want you to dip your finger in that dirty water. It's not holy water, it's dirty water. Everybody sticks their finger in it. I don't know where their fingers have been. But when you're religious, you do dumb things. You see? So you want to make sure you drop the plumb line and say, is this biblical or is it not? It's not a matter that you hate people. It's just that you love God more. The other two synoptic gospels describe the kingdom from different focus. Mark 9.1 says they would not see death, but they would see the kingdom of God present with power. Luke 9.27 says they would see the kingdom of God. And then Luke gives us the key detail about what the conversation was about. Luke 9.31, it says his Decease, which was accomplished at Jerusalem. The word decease means departure. Speaking about his death and resurrection, which spoke of victory and redemption, just like the exodus of Egypt. Peter uses the same word for his departure. The Lord had made known he was going to take him home in Second Peter 1.15. Same word, exodus. Now, the two prophets, notice, represented the law and the prophets. Jesus was the fulfillment of the law and the prophets. No king ever occupied all the three offices, priest, king, and prophet. They were kings and prophets and kings and priests, but never the three. Jesus occupied all of them. Moses had been dead 1,400 years and buried by God in some unknown place that he gives to us in Deuteronomy 34, 5 through 6. And Elijah, as you know, had been taken up 900 years earlier in 1 Kings 2, 11 through 12 uh, in the whirlwind. And then Elisha picked up his mantle and began his ministry. Now, Elijah, or Moses here, first represented the law in a parallel to the believers who will be raised at the resurrection with a glorified body. There he was, all glorified. Elijah represented the prophets of that parallel that the believer who is raptured will never die because he never died, he was taken up. So you have two parallels. 
of the glorified body and also of being taken up, that generation. Now notice verse 4. Peter spoke to Jesus in response. The apostle Peter, as usual, has the hoof and mouth disease. And um, he takes the lead, and we learn a lot from him. Then Peter answered and said to Jesus, um, Luke tells us that Peter said this as Moses and Elijah were departing in Luke 9.33. So because Luke gives us that, if we didn't give us that, we would think he's saying it in front of them. But they have just left, departed, and that's when Peter addresses Jesus. The three synoptic gospels do not contradict each other, but they supplement one another. Notice the apostle Peter expressed his thoughts. Lord, it is good for us to be here. If you wish, let us make here three tabernacles, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. Now, some say Peter was only thinking of him and the other two disciples and not of the other nine. Lord, it is good that we are here. But Lenski and some of the other Greek scholars point out that um, the aspect of us does not indicate Peter, James, and John, but Peter is saying, us, you and I, Lord. Wow, what a difference, huh? It's, it's you know, the trinity of darkness, me, myself, and I. And, of course, I'm kind of nice, so I'll include Jesus in it. We're always thinking of ourselves. Amazing. He wanted to prolong the experience, and I don't blame him. He says, let us make three tabernacles, these booths, kind of like at the Feast of Tabernacle where they spent outside in memory of God providing everything in the wilderness and his faithfulness. Some say Peter gave equal standing here uh, to the three men. I'm not sure if that's correct. Uh, One for you, one for Moses, and one for Elisha. He simply was just uh, uh, trying to um, just be there a little longer probably. Moses was called and sent by God to deliver the people of God, as you know, from Egypt. Um, But God did the miracles and the judgments. It was all God's doing, not Moses. Elijah was called and anointed to speak for God. He was the mouthpiece of God, but it was God who was giving them the revelation, right? Jesus was God, the Son of the living God. That's the one that we have to have our eyes on. And there's always that bend, that propensity by people. That's why there's places like uh, Jim Jones in Guyana or David Koresh. And, and there are thousands out there. There are a bunch of cults, churches that are cults, that men and women will do anything and everything for the man who is leading. You be careful. You follow Jesus. No one else. No one else. The other synoptic gospels give the reason for Peter's comments. Um, Mark 9, 6 and Luke 9, 33 um, tell us Peter said this because he didn't know what to say and the three were afraid. This is nervous talk. Thinking we have to say something. You've been there. You go to a wedding. You sit at a table that you don't know anybody and you're sitting there. Oh, well, yeah. And then you say something stupid. It's just nervous talk. You know what I mean? 
Or someone sits next to you and, you know, and they, they don't have any filter over their mouth and in five minutes they told you their whole life and you're going, nice knowing you, you know what I mean? Matthew calls Jesus Lord, Mark Rabbi, and Luke Master. Notice verse 5 and 6. The Father spoke to the three disciples. Now the Father put a stop to the nervous talk of Peter. You know, like the father, you know, his kid's there and they're talking. All of a sudden, his kid's going to do something. He goes, you know, or just quenches it right there. The father of Jesus surrounded the three with his presence. He says, while he was still speaking, behold, a bright cloud overshadowed them. Bright meaning it was composed of light. This is a divine presence, a theophany. This is the Shekinah glory of God, like that of Moses on Sinai in the cloud, depicting the divine presence. We see it through Exodus and other books. The cloud, the pillar of fire, the thunder, the lightning, uh, things like that. We have it in the New Testament as Jesus ascends in the clouds back to heaven. Uh, he will descend to the clouds in 1 Thessalonians 4.17 for the rapture um, uh, over and over again. The word overshadow simply means to envelop. All three synoptic gospels make this very detail. All three of them. Luke says they were fearful as they entered the crowd. So Luke 9.34 now gives a little more detail. As they entered the crowd, all of a sudden fear came over them. It's a natural thing. Every one of us would if Jesus appeared. I mean, you would be incredibly privileged, but you'd freak out at first, right? Because you know who he is. The Father of Jesus confirms the deity of Jesus. Listen to what he says. And suddenly a voice came out of the crowd saying, This is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. Hear him. The declaration of the incarnation of Jesus. Don't miss it. This is my beloved Son. The Son of my love. The declaration of the perfection of Jesus is timeless in the Greek. In whom I am well pleased. He's always been well pleased. Always. Never an exception. In the declaration of obedience to Jesus, hear him, a durative present, all the time. What father and mother doesn't want obedience from their children all the time? But we are living in reality. We know it's not going to happen, but we do expect it, right? The declaration was, as at his baptism, when father spoke up in Matthew three seventeen, And this, again, is instructional to the three like Moses up in Mount Sinai. You find the parallel between the two. Notice verse 6, the response of the three apostles. And when the disciples heard it, they fell on their faces and were greatly afraid. They gave reverence and worship here by the putting of their faces to the ground. We see Ezekiel falling on his face all the time. God tell him to get up. Daniel chapter 8, 17, Revelation 1, 17. Uh, worship, reverence, this, this display, their common godly um, response, a godly fear, being men of flesh and blood, greatly afraid, exceedingly fearful, literally. Matthew's the only one to tell us they were afraid um, hearing the voice of God. It was when he spoke, that's when the fear came. Look at verse 7 and 8. Jesus spoke to the disciples now. Jesus comforted the three. But Jesus came and touched them, saying, Arise 
and do not be afraid. The touch of tenderness matches the voice of authority. It's like when you as a parent, your child is afraid, maybe there's rain and lightning and thunder that night and they cry out from the room. You walk over and you sit down, you just put your hand, you say, I'm, and, and they feel your hand and they're comforted. And then your voice, don't worry about it, I'm, I'm here, nothing's going to happen. And that, that comes together. Um, God is, is very compassionate towards us. Here he demonstrates it so vividly. This was an imperative present middle voice prohibiting what had already started. They were already afraid. Literally, stop being afraid. Do you know how many times you read that through Scripture? It tells Joshua, stop being afraid. <laughs> Tell Moses, stop being afraid. Because from the human perspective, we freak out at times. We get our eyes out of the Lord. We, we get fearful. Income tax is coming up. House taxes. Woo! Freaked out. Jesus returns to his incarnate state. Now look at verse 8. When they had lifted up their eyes, they saw no one but Jesus only. That's the way it should always be, no matter who's around. But your eyes are on Jesus, no one else. Luke gives us the uh, exact time and the fact that they did not say a word. And the voice when the voice has ceased, Jesus was found alone. Mark says it happened in an instant. Suddenly, when they had looked around, they saw no one uh, anymore, but only Jesus with themselves. The transfiguration would be like um, being allowed to see your wedding in the future with all the uh, pomp and the joy and the celebration way before it happened. Being able to look forward to it. Amazing. The Bible tells us that during the tribulation period, two witnesses of God are going to terrorize the Antichrist. In Revelation 11, they're just going to give him a bad time, man. They're going to have the power to shut down the heaven with rain. Paul called fire from heaven. If anybody met with him, they're going to barbecue him. And then... Um, called plagues on the earth in Revelation 11, 3 through 6. And then after a certain amount, right in the middle of the tribulation, God will allow those two witnesses um, to be overcome, killed, and they will lay in the street of Jerusalem for three and a half days. And the whole world's going to be celebrating. They're going to be having a party. You know, when, I, when we used to teach this stuff 30 years ago, 35, 25 years ago, people would say, well, this and that. But as you look at the animosity and the militancy of the liberals today towards any form of faith or conservatism, you can clearly see they're going to be having a party. The Bible says they're going to be sending gifts to each other around the world. Every eye is going to see them, and certainly with technology. I mean, you can, I can pull out my phone, and if I had cameras in my house, I could see my backyard, everything else. Somebody walking across, I could turn the thing on. Hey, what are you doing there? You know? And then the Spirit of God is going to come in them and they're going to stand up and they're going to go straight up to heaven and the whole world is going to go, oops. Do you believe this, ladies and gentlemen? Absolutely. Now, this is why some believe that it will be Moses and Elijah instead of Enoch 
because of what we see here in the Mount Transfiguration, fulfillment of Malachi 4.5. Um, it could be because of the signs, but remember that Enoch and Elijah are the only two that have never died. It's appointed every man to die once and the judgment. So those are the candidates. Now we must be careful not to get too enamored with any man, as I said, pastor, teacher, whoever he may be. Jesus is God who became man. He is the last Adam to prove that the first Adam did not have to fail but chose to fail. He's the Lamb of God which takes away the sins of the world. And no one, no one stands in equivalence to him. And it's very important. In fact, Deuteronomy 18, 18 and 19, Moses says, I will raise up from them a prophet like you from among their brethren and will put my words in their mouth and he shall speak to them all that I command him. And it shall be that whoever will not hear my words, which he speaks in my name, I will require it from him. Deuteronomy 18, 18 and 19. Jesus was that prophet. In fact, the New Testament, Hebrews chapter 1, verse 1 through 4 uh, just nails it. God, who at various times and in various ways spoke in times past to the fathers of the prophets, has in these last days, last days from the first coming to the second coming, has spoken to us by his Son, whom he has appointed heir of all things, through whom also he made the world, and being the brightness of his glory and the express image of his person, and of holding all things by the word of his power, when he had by himself purged our sins, sat down at the right hand of majesty on high, having become a much better than the angels, as he has by inheritance obtained a more excellent name than they. You want one word for the book of Hebrews? Better. Better than the prophets, better than the law, better than the angels, better than Moses, better than Levi, better than everything. Says so plain better. These three, Peter, James, and John, saw the Son of Man coming in his kingdom and splendor and glory, coming back with his church, the bride, to destroy the armies of the world that would attempt to stop him from setting up his kingdom. As I said earlier, the Psalm 2 gives a preview and he laughs at them and has them in derision. Psalm or Revelation 19, he comes back with a two-edged sword coming forth from his mouth and he will destroy them. And he will set up his kingdom. Amazing. The conversations of Jesus during the transfiguration affirms the second coming of the Son of God. There is no doubt about his second coming. Absolutely. Notice thirdly, we have the proclamation after the transfiguration, 9 through 13. In verse 9, the mountaintop experience was to be kept for themselves till the resurrection. The time is precisely indicated now as they came down from the mountain. Mark confirms a specific time in Mark 9, 9. And Luke does not record this last section that runs from verse 9 to 13. He totally omits it. Now notice the length of time is also specified. Jesus commanded them saying, tell the vision to no one until the Son of Man is risen from the dead. Jesus identified the experience on the Mount of Transfiguration as a vision. Underline that. A vision means when they are awake. God's revelation. They literally saw this literally. A dream is while you're sleeping and God communicated and used both 
manners in the Old Testament as well as the New. The title of Son of Man indicates his incarnation, focused upon his humanity. As God, he became man. He would die, he would resurrect, and he would sit at the right hand of the Father. It's, he's six months away from this. Uh, he's walking under the shadow of the cross. His face is towards Jerusalem. He's not flinching away from it. Mark records the same thing in Mark 9, 9. And Luke says, but they kept quiet and told no one in those days any of the things they had seen. Luke nine thirty six. This has to include the other nine apostles. Duh. Otherwise, Jesus would have taken them up. This was an experience just for those three. You as a parent will have times with each child that you will take and you will allow them to experience with you something the others will not. And the sooner they understand that your love is for all of them and there's no comparison, no competition, the better off they will be. Very important. Notice the reason is not given, but Jesus knew. He had yet to fulfill many other prophecies, and the people might attempt to make him a political king. We've noticed this already in past studies. Let me read you John again, John 6.15. Therefore, when Jesus perceived that they were about to come and take him by force to make him king, he departed again to the mountains by himself alone. The Jews were tired of the oppression of Rome and all the subjugation and taxes and everything else. They were ready for they were they were ready to rebel, and Jesus came to save the world, not to be a politician. Very important. Now Jesus had commanded the same thing to his disciples that they were not to tell anyone um, about the confession of Peter in chapter sixteen twenty when he says you're the son of the living God. He says, don't tell anybody until afterwards. That was for all 12. Okay? This was just for the three. They kept the matter to themselves, questioning what the rising from the dead meant, Luke 9, 10 says. So again, they still are sketchy about the resurrection. Now, in verse 10 through 13, notice the confusion about Elijah was dispelled by Jesus here. In verse 10, the confusion is understandable, for they had just seen Elijah... And had not, he had not come. And the disciples asked him, saying, Why then do the scribes say Elijah must come first? Mark says the same thing in Mark 9.11. The clear teaching of Scripture about Elijah is still future. Jesus answered and said to them, Indeed, Elijah is coming first and will restore all things. Verse 11. Elijah will be one of the two witnesses as we've already noted. Fulfilling Malachi 4, 4 through 5, Revelation 11. The coming of John the Baptist was the short-term fulfillment of Elijah. And the same suffering Jesus would experience like John the Baptist. He tells them that in verse 12. But I say to you that Elijah has come already, John the Baptist, his cousin. And they did, to him, did not know him, but did to him whatever they wished. Likewise, here's the parallel. The Son of Man is also about to suffer at their hands. They were going to mistreat Jesus too because they didn't identify him as Messiah. 
He cried over Jerusalem, wept over Jerusalem. How many times I wanted to gather you as a hen gathers her chicks on the wind, but you would not. If you would have known this your day, the things that were prepared for you. God schooled them for 2,000 years about their Messiah. They missed it. They missed it. John came in the power of the spirit of Elijah, as we've seen in Luke one seventeen, as Gabriel told uh, Zacharias' father that that would be the perfect fulfillment of Malachi 3.1. And so John was not recognized, and so he was put to death by Herod. The Messiah would also suffer the same fate as John. Uh, and we've already touched on John earlier uh, when uh, he sent his disciples in Matthew 11, 1, 10 through 14, and also chapter 14, 1 through 12. Those two passages deal with John. Now, Mark records the same as Matthew, but focuses on what is written concerning the Son of Man, that he must suffer many things and be treated with contempt. Mark nine twelve. Notice the confused disciples comprehended now the scriptures about Elisha and John. It says in verse 13, Then the disciples understood that he spoke to them of John the Baptist. One of the important teachings of parents to their children is to know what information is only for the ears of family and what is not. That doesn't mean you're secretive, doesn't mean that you're sneaky, it means that you have discretion and you're prudent and you're trustworthy. And you're teaching this to your children. The same is going on here. The validity of the transformation experienced by the disciples is stated clearly by Peter. Many people will question all that we're studying right now and say, well, I don't know if it really happened. Well, Peter, some 30-some years later, um, says that he did not invent this, neither did the other two. It wasn't something that they just lied about. In 2 Peter 1, 16 through 20, um, Peter says, uh, For we did not follow cunning devised fables, in other words, trickery of men, uh, coming... Um, for we did not follow fables when we made known to you the power and the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but were eyewitnesses of his majesty, the glorification. For he received from God the Father honor and glory when such a voice came to him from the excellent glory. This is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. And we heard the voice which came from heaven when we were with him on the holy mountain. Verse 16 through 18 of first Peter one of Second Peter one. Thirty some years. He's ready to be taken home. The Lord says he's going to take him home. And he shares this all of a sudden. He didn't do it in First Peter, but towards the end of his life. In verse 19 to 21 of the same chapter of Second Peter, there, Peter said the transfiguration was validated by the fulfillment of prophecy. Listen to him. And so we have the prophetic word confirm, which you do well to heed as a light that shines in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts. Knowing this first, that no prophecy of the scripture is of any private interpretation. Now let me give you a better translation. That's a bad translation. Of no private impulse or origin, human-wise. Now you'll see that it makes sense the rest of it. Watch what it says. 
For prophecy never came by the will of man, but holy men of God spoke as they were moved, literally carried by the Holy Spirit. So it didn't come from their own. They didn't say, well, I think I'll write an epistle today. No. They were inspired, therefore inerrant and infallible. Every word, every jot, every tittle. Okay? So it's not a matter of interpretation. It's a matter of understanding and letting the word interpret the word of God completely. There are times when Jesus and God the Father would have each of us to um, not disclose certain things to others uh, as he has allowed us to go through with him because they're just for us. Once again, um, sometimes the church is made kind of like, a, you know, everything is just let loose and there's no discretion, there's no a sense of um, self-respect or everything. There are times when God will allow us to share with certain people certain things and God will use and he'll be glorified. Uh, but uh, he would have us, to, those things that he has dealt with me about, certain things and, and that I can still minister to others and know that God can pull you out of that because I know what he's pulled me out of. I know how good he's been to me and I can minister the same way. When God has spoken to you in a very personal way regarding some issue, um, and you understood and you felt His presence, and it had nothing to do with emotion feel, but you knew He was ministering to you. You knew He was directing His attention to you. When God gives you some particular direction or, or promise or something as you're seeking Him. And again, this can happen as you're seeking Him or just driving down the street, down the freeway, or just being at home or just walking in from the parking lot. The lack of maturity or pride can lead a person to not be discreet or discerning. Uh, Proverbs 11.2 says, When pride comes, then comes shame, but with the humble is wisdom. Proverbs 14.33, Wisdom rests in the hearts of him who has understanding, but what is in the heart of fools is made known. And so the proclamation of Jesus after the transfiguration confirms the suffering of the Son of God. These disciples were getting ready to go to Jerusalem, believing they were going to knock off Rome and set up the kingdom. And they... We're going to be served. <laughs> what a surprise they had when they got there. The transfiguration of Jesus unfolded for us in these three movements. What an incredible passage here. The glorification of Jesus at the transfiguration revealed he was God. The conversations of Jesus during the transfiguration affirmed the second coming of the Son of God. And the proclamation of Jesus after the transfiguration confirmed the sufferings of the Son of God. He was committed. He would go suffer and die for the sins of the world, for you and for myself. Lord, we worship you. We thank you for your grace and love. And we pray even now, Lord, your hand be upon us and those who are listening. Lord, whether it be over the internet or, Lord, on the radio, that you would just deal with the heart of those who do not know you and that you would allow them to understand your love and your grace for them, Lord, and your desire to forgive them of sin and to change their lives. And as you're praying, if you don't know Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, whether you're here or over the radio,
somewhere in the world or even over the internet. God wants to forgive you. God wants to call for you to call upon him that he may be just pour out his grace upon you. It comes through repentance. If you believe what I have declared, the word of God, then you can call upon him right now and he will save you right where you're at. This is your prayer repentance to him, not to us. Father, I come to you in Jesus' name. I ask you to forgive me for all my sins. Give me a brand new heart. Baptize me with your Holy Spirit. I accept you as my Savior and Lord. In Jesus' name, amen.